The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Good to see everybody. Thanks for uh, getting in here early and being with us every night. We have another great show tonight. We always enjoy talking about Bigfoot, and that's what we're going to talk about. And a lot of the frustrations when it comes to talking about Bigfoot is that the evidence doesn't seem to change much. And a lot of those who uh, believe have to believe on faith because they don't get a lot of hard evidence. And we're going to ask our guest, William Jevning, why that is. And we're also going to talk about whatever the uh, most recent sightings have been and uh, what he thinks is going on uh, with Bigfoot. What is Bigfoot? More and more people think Bigfoot might be an interdimensional creature. More and more people think Bigfoot may have an alien connection. And of course, we all know the plural of Bigfoot is Bigfootses. <laughs> so we can put that question to bed. Oh, boy. Okay. Hey, uh, did you see this thing going on in California? And amongst uh, everything else that's happening, or all over the country, in fact, um, apparently some people have been putting up signs in a uh, uh, in and around a state park, I think it is. Maybe it's a city park. I'm not even quite sure. It's a lake. It's called Big Bear Lake. And these signs, and I'm going to read this sign to you. It says... It has an emblem of the U.S. Forest Service. I don't know if that's the real emblem. I assume it is. And it says, unsafe area in big, bold letters. And then underneath that, it says, visitor assumes all risk. And then it says, attention campers, due to increased satanic cult activity in the area, camping is not advised until further notice. Several pets have been reportedly sacrificed in satanic rituals. Several missing persons reports have been filed with local authorities. And then it goes on to list the quote unquote areas affected. And then it said, if suspicious activity is observed, leave the area immediately and call 911. So it turns out this sign is fake. Uh, the U.S. Forest Service has had nothing to do with this. The local authorities in Big Bear Lake have had nothing to do with this, and they're looking for information to determine who put these signs up and why, because there doesn't seem to be any real logical reason to do that, and just other than maybe just to scare people. I don't know. But interesting story nonetheless, as things continue to get stranger and stranger around the country. Is it the comet? Is that why? Have you, have, has everybody had a chance to take a look at this comet? I went out the other night. I've been out actually a couple nights looking for it, and I can't, I just can't seem to find it. Um, I know where it's supposed to be, and I don't see it. So I do read that, you know, you should have a good pair of binoculars to help you see it, which I don't. I'm just using my, uh, my, my, um, eyes with no help of any uh, telescope or anything. But I thought it was bright enough with the tail that you could actually kind of see it. If, if the sky was clear enough and there was no light pollution. And I have to say, I've been looking uh, close to my home. And although we do have, uh, we're in a very small village, there isn't a lot of light pollution. There is still a little bit. And you really need to be out in the middle of nowhere. Like I, I should be on my boat. I should go out on my boat in the middle of the lake and then look. Because I bet I'd see it then. It's, um, it's supposedly kind of just below the Big Dipper. If you can find the Big Dipper and you... 
just kind of uh, look below it. I don't know, you know, what the official measurement is, but it's supposed to be there. And it's called Neowise. That's right, Michelle. Thank you. Um, so I have seen great pictures of it. So something's up there or, or, or somebody's really good at Photoshop. I'm not sure, but it looks cool. Um, I just haven't had a chance to see it myself. And I, what's t- tomorrow night? It's actually tomorrow night. It's going to be the closest that it comes to Earth. And uh, if you can see it tomorrow night, which I don't think I'll be able to because um, I think the entire Northeast is going to be cloudy. But uh, if you do have an opportunity, tomorrow night should be uh, a good one, closest to the Earth. And then it starts moving away, and then it doesn't come around again for many millennia. We are... um, encouraging people to go to our YouTube channel and subscribe. There's no charge for subscribing to our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube, search for JV Johnson, very simple, and you'll find it. Just hit the subscribe button. And also go to Twitch, and when you find us on Twitch, also just JV Johnson, when you find us there, just uh, uh, follow us. There's no charge to follow. And if you want to subscribe, we encourage that as well. There is a fee for subscriptions, although it does give you some additional benefits and ad-free viewing. But if you have an Amazon Prime account, then you can just link that Prime account and there's no additional charge and then there's no fee for the subscription. It's kind of cool because Twitch is owned by Amazon. And uh, I encourage you to do that too. And our numbers are growing there as as well. Um, that's going to do it for the intro here. Let's let's get to break here and then get our guest on the phone. Again, tonight we're talking with William Jevning and it's going to be a great conversation about Bigfoot. Get your questions ready. We'll be watching chat to be able to uh, submit your questions. Both chats um, will be monitored, and uh, we'll ask uh, Will your questions about Bigfoot as well. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. But we're very, very excited to have a returning guest on the program. William Jevening is joining us again. We're going to be talking about Bigfoot. Will, hey, sorry about I guess there's a little bit of confusion about time, but thankfully you're here. Welcome back to the program. Great to have you with us again. Thank you. Appreciate it. So let's... Um, <sighs> There's a question that I that I always like to kind of get out of the way, just so we can understand when somebody's going to talk about a topic, particularly like Bigfoot, uh, kind of what the perspective is, you know, where they're coming from on on this. And there, I, from what I can understand, there's three kinds of people. There are people that are firm believers, just absolutely believe. And this is probably true of things like UFO phenomena, ghost phenomena, whatever it happens to be. So they're the believers. And then they're the people who won't believe regardless of what they see here or are told. And then there's the people who aren't sure, maybe want to believe, but are going to remain skeptical until they can themselves find something substantive to prove it one way or another. Do you have, do you believe you fall into one of those three categories? Well, I, I agree with the three categories, and, and the way I like to define those is if you were to look at a topic, okay, on one side you get the, really, it's actually a very small number of people. It's kind of a fringe on one side, like you said, that believe yeah. pretty much in whatever put, is put in front of them. And then on the opposite side you have another small fringe that's people who won't believe anything. You've got this really large amount of people in the middle. 
And like you said, they're the ones that are kind of on the fence. You know, it, it doesn't take much to prove or disprove something to them. You know, they're, they're open-minded. They're willing to look at a, a subject and ask a lot of questions about it. Those are my favorite kind of people, actually, uh, the skeptics. What I am is uh, somebody that's, you know, I, I walked into a situation, I know what I saw, uh, so it's not a matter of believing, disbelieving. I question a lot of things. Um, but just from that perspective, you know, I, I know what was standing in front of me, so <laughs> yeah, that's a category all of its own, really. So as far as your experiences and your information goes, you've seen proof that you, that you say is irrefutable. You've had, a, you've had a sighting. You've seen it. There's no question in your mind. Correct. I imagine that that um, category of person who has uh, not just that much confidence but has had the experience to prove beyond a reasonable doubt the existence of anything, of, again, whether it's UFO phenomenon, Bigfoot, or ghosts, um, that's probably a minority, right, don't you think? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of people over there. There's probably thousands that have been in my situation and have seen things. And um, it's it's kind of a life changer. It's different if you haven't seen something and discuss it as opposed to, you know, there it is 20 feet in front of you. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a whole different mindset. But then there are people who have an experience. Maybe it's not standing 20 feet in front of them, but maybe it's, you know, 45 feet and they see the head peek out from behind a tree and they still will deny that they saw something that warrants at least a question. I I think that's kind of a natural way for people to be because, you know, when you see something like that, it's outside of your frame of reference. I mean, there is no frame of reference. Maybe there's a little bit these days because, you know, it's more saturated in different media venues these days than it was, say, when I first, the first time I found tracks was in 1972. We'd never heard the word Bigfoot. Um, <clears throat> so it was completely outside of anything we had any sort of knowledge of or even thought of. So I, I think a lot of people are, are still in that category when they see something, like I said, maybe a partial, or, or I, I categorize you know, events like this, either you've had a direct encounter like mine was, or you've had a peripheral encounter. I mean, that could be vocals, seeing something, you know, partial, like you said, maybe a head or something. Um, all, all the other things that fit into that, you know, that are Sasquatch related, but it wasn't that direct encounter. So without the frame of reference, it's pretty difficult, I think, for most people to kind of wrap their head around it. You know, you, you question yourself, did I really see that? Yeah. So did I hear you right, though? You actually found tracks before you really had any knowledge of what Bigfoot was, what it might be, uh, and you clearly weren't out looking for it if you hadn't heard of it. No, me and a buddy, um, you know, at the, at the ripe old age of 14, where uh, you come over to spend a weekend, it snowed, there wasn't a lot going on, so we got the bright idea to go to another one of our friend's house that lived about a mile away. And, uh, normally we would have taken a trail through the woods that would have made that distance quite a bit shorter, but we couldn't find the trail with snow on the ground. So <laughs> we walked down the road to, uh, where the railroad tracks intersected. We walked down the tracks because they went directly by his house. And, uh, we got about three quarters of the way to his house on the tracks. 
and found some intestines Ooh. laying in the snow between the rails. Oh, geez. And what the heck is this? You know, they were from something about, I guess, you know, what you'd think of as a medium-sized dog or a coyote, roughly that size. Mm-hmm. And there were no footprints of any kind around there. So we're thinking, well, how in the heck did this get here? So I told my buddy Mark to walk on up ahead of the tracks. You know, obviously there was nothing the way we came, nothing to the right we could see down below us. And there was a rise to the left. And then I said, well, you go, you go up ahead and see if you see anything. I'll climb up in this embankment and take a look. And I got up there, it was maybe eight, ten feet up there, and, and I hollered at him. I said, come on, take a look at this. There are these footprints all over the place in the snow. And we're standing there kind of ooing and eyeing, you know, these, um, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> That's all right. Big human-looking bare footprints in the snow. And my first thought was, number one, you know, who's got feet that big? <laughs> yeah. And what are they doing walking around here barefoot, you know, in, in this, uh, it was a less than 20 degrees that morning. So uh, while we were thinking about it, it dawned on me that the animal intestines weren't frozen yet. So that cold, this had to have happened pretty recently. It it looked like, you know, later we figured that they had tossed them probably from this position. It wasn't very far from that spot. And it spooked us. So we took off running. We figured whatever made all these prints was still pretty close by. So we took off running. We pounded on my friend John's door furiously and, he answered, and he had two younger brothers and two younger sisters. So all these kids are in just pandemonium, you know, about all this, what we'd found. And his dad come walking out of the back of the house. And he said, boy, settle down. What's going on? So we told him, and he said, he grabbed a uh, forty-five pistol and a camera, and he says, take me up there and show me. So all of us, this whole group goes back up there, and uh, he takes some pictures, and, and we're all, you know, it's just totally disorganized. And he told us what little, he must have read something in a magazine or seen something on TV. We don't know uh, what little he knew. And, and, you know, that that age, we're thinking, holy cow, there's real monsters out here in the woods. So we we went looking, you know, all all those guys every weekend after that, never saw anything else. So, you know, when you're kids at that age, your attention span isn't that long. So we kind of forgot about it. And two years later, my dog was barking one evening right before dark and we had to tie him to his house because he liked to wander off to the neighboring farms and bring their livestock back to us, things like that. So to keep him out of trouble, we tied him up. So he was barking like crazy. My dad always said, um, you know, if something comes in the yard, shoot it because it might be rabid. And there were a lot of skunks and raccoons, things like that, that always came in the yard. And, uh, so I, I grabbed a 22 and, let the dog go. And I said, go get him. He goes racing out to the nearby tree line and I'm following him and he gets there and he stops. And he, that dog never stopped for anything before that time or afterwards. Um, you know, he got face, a face full of porcupine quills twice because he wouldn't leave things alone. But this time he stopped and he stood there real rigid with his ears up and I'm walking up toward him, and he turned around and ran past me as fast as he could. I'm thinking, where's that crazy dog going? So I saw him, watched him run to the house. He got up on the back porch, and he was sitting there kind of shivering. I thought, what the heck? So I walk up to the trail, and I can hear something in there. And I'm thinking, well, maybe it's a porcupine. Maybe he finally learned his lesson. So I had chambered around, and there were some low-hanging um, fir branches there, so I kind of pushed push those through and 
inside the uh, fir boughs, there was there was a big uh, maple tree in there. And this would have been about October. There was nothing on the trees. Everything was on the ground, on the leaves. So I pushed my way through the fir boughs that were hanging there with my rifle in my right hand. And about 20 feet, 15, 20 feet in front of me under this big maple tree is this huge creature. And it's standing there um, moving the leaves with its right foot. And I'm just, you know, in milliseconds, all these things go through your mind. Uh, you know, the biggest one is, you know, what the heck is this? And then it's, it dawns on me at the same time, this must be one of the things that made the footprints. We'd found three different sets of footprints. And um, so, you know, it, I guess time kind of slows down because, you know, when you, when you think about it, you know, all these things happen, but it was so fast. And the only thing I could think of was it, it was massive. Uh, there was nothing I could do except maybe shoot in the air and maybe to scare it off. Mm-hmm. And this thing was a good two feet higher than me, so it had to be around eight feet tall. Um, every bit of 800-plus pounds. I mean, it was probably four or five feet across the shoulders. And, uh, I mean, just, just massive. It was solid all the way down. And when it saw me, it stopped moving and just stood there and, and stared at me. And I shot. It didn't do anything. And I heard a noise from kind of my right rear. And I'm, I'm trying to keep an eye on this thing and look at the same time. I heard a little commotion behind some brush. And out come walk, walking this other one. And it walked past me and went over and stood by the first one. It was about a head shorter. And I could tell it was it was lighter. It was, it was a smaller creature. And about that time, you know, the, the fear response kicked in. And I took off running, you know, hoping it wasn't breathing down my neck, either one of them. And uh, my my parents and sisters had made fun of us about finding the footprints two years before, so I didn't say anything. I, I got on the phone to my buddy John and told him what happened, and we all met at my house at first light the next morning with our hunting rifles, uh, me and him and, and his couple of his brothers and another friend of ours, and we tracked these things for, geez, I don't know, it was the longest time until the fun, sun finally came out and thawed the, uh, the frost, and we lost the prints, but... And I have no idea what we would have done had we actually caught up to it. Right. I guess we just wanted to see. Yeah. Did when when you first encountered the larger one, the first one you saw, did it take an aggressive posture with you, or was it as surprised to see you as you were to see it? You know, I didn't get the impression it was surprised. Um, it just stood there. I don't know if it was. You know, looking back, it was probably assessing the situation. You know, because they, they do seem to recognize weapons or at least anything people have in their hands as some kind of a weapon. And I think it was taking stock of what, you know, I may or may not have been doing. And especially after firing the weapon, uh, and that's when the other one came out, but I wasn't going to wait around to figure out. But it didn't seem like it was, yeah, like I said, it was just kind of standing there staring at me. And I, I got the impression it was glaring, not necessarily just watching, but it was, you know, the light was bad, so, uh, but it, it didn't seem to be a fr- very friendly posture. And did the one, the second one that appeared that what you said was about a head's length shorter and lighter yeah. in color, do you think that was a female or a different type of creature or, or maybe even a juvenile? Not lighter color. It was, it was smaller. It was lighter oh, weight. Oh, I see. Okay. It, it was a smaller, um, it could have been a juvenile. I just can't imagine 
turning a corner or moving a branch or whatever and becoming and being face to face with a creature as massive and as intimidate, intimidating as you've just described this one, even though it may not have been acting aggressively, uh, that alone has to be um, a terrifying moment because you don't know how this creature is going to react. And you know if it does react, you don't stand a chance. I, I can tell you, when I was younger, I, I ran into a bear out on our property. It was very close, five or six feet away, and and that fear was nothing like this fear was. I mean, that was 45 years ago, and I still have nightmares occasionally about that. Um, it's indescribable. Yeah. So was all of that the foundation, I guess, of what you do now today and have done for so many years, which I would call uh, and put it simply as saying just to search for answers? Basically, and what happened, I wasn't really doing it. I mean, while I was, we went out and looked, you know, prior to that time, but um, my buddy John and I, I, we were riding an activities bus after school. I, I don't remember if it was we turned out for the baseball team or something. But anyway, you know, we were on this bus in the evening. We were sitting, he was sitting behind me, and uh, we were talking very quietly about this. This was, oh, two or three months later. And uh, there weren't many kids on the bus, so we figured we could talk quietly. Nobody would hear us. And one of our friends, um, kind of a, a quiet, shy individual, didn't have very many friends, but good guy, he overheard us, and he come over, and he sits down, and he says, well, I'd like to interview you for um, about what happened. And I thought to myself, well, you know, it's not ever going to go anywhere. I mean, geez, we're high school, you know, so what's he gonna, who's he going to tell? So I told him and didn't think anything about it until, oh, maybe a week later, I think. And he gave me three books written by a Canadian author named John Green. <clears throat> and... They were books about the Sasquatch, and I was shocked that there was that much information. So I poured over the books, and um, later that summer, it would have been 1975, um, I was sleeping one afternoon. Noon, I guess it was an overcast day, and for whatever reason, I was crashed out. And one of my sisters came in. She said, uh, hey, there's two men out here to see you. And I'm thinking, two men? I don't know any men except my, you know, my dad's friends or uncles. So I slipped on my boots, went out to the back, and here's Renee Hinden that I recognized from John Green's books, mm. and another man named Dennis Gates from Cedar Woolley, Washington. And, and I was shocked because, you know, back in those days, in the 70s, you know, you see somebody in a book, you automatically assume they're famous, right? That's right. And so I, I go walking out, he introduced himself, and he said, uh, this friend of mine had written John Green about my experiences. And they were just north of us uh, in the town of Puyallup doing an investigation on what was later called the Puyallup Screamer events. And uh, so he, he asked me about what happened, and I told him. And he says, hey, you know, why don't you uh, come up to our camp and meet Green and some of the other people up there? So he told me how to find him, and, and me and another guy went there. And uh, come to find out the... Uh, we found the three sets of tracks in 72 and then I encountered two of the creatures in 74. And then by the summer 75, that's when they were doing the investigation there and all this had been going, it was only seven miles away. So in, in the realm of Sasquatch, that's fairly close. Sure. 
and uh, a state trooper was there by the name of Mark Penninger, and we were talking, and he had actually seen all three of the creatures, and, and we compared notes, and, and the two of them were exactly the same ones of the three he saw. So that's really how I got my start, was uh, Green and Hinden asked me if I'd you know be their eyes and ears, and, and we stayed in, in constant contact. And then uh, even while I was in the Army after high school, you know, we, we stayed in very regular contact. And when I got out and moved to Vancouver, Washington, then uh, I, I had done some things on and off even while on the service. But once I got out, then I, you know, did it as often as I could, you know, with very close contact with those guys. You've had... Uh quite some some I, i'll call it good luck I'm, I'm and i would probably think at this point you'd call it good luck maybe at the time you didn't um you know a lot of people will search for their whole lifetimes and not even see a footprint not even see a track um and you started off with a bang there has it continued throughout the course of your investigations and research have you had continued luck either running into or finding additional evidence of bigfoot yeah oh yeah um you know, the more you do something, I mean, you, you learn as you go, or you should learn. Um, you know, if you continue, continue doing things that don't work, then, you know, you have to change. But, um, you know, I grew up hunting and fishing. I was pretty familiar with the outdoors and wildlife. So it sort of comes natural. And then my job in the Army, I was a reconnaissance specialist. So mm-hmm. that, that helps also. Wow. Um, t- tell me more about um, DeHinden. Now, that work was pioneer work. There weren't very many people that were either interested in or certainly researching and trying to get answers about Bigfoot, um, even even up into the 70s. I mean, I'm not sure. We, we've turned a bit of a corner, but I think that's very re- recently where, you know, some, some TV programs have gotten a hold of it and, and made it a little more, um, I wouldn't say common, but certainly better known. Um, so tell right. me a little bit more about uh, Renee's work and um, what it had been up until that point when you started to get involved. You know, a lot of people underestimate Renee. He was really, really the first one. Um, he emigrated from Switzerland in the 50s, and he was working um, for a farmer on the East Coast when they were overheard a radio a news broadcast or something, and they were talking about uh, some mountain climbers or somebody going to look for the Yeti. And he made the comment, you know, kind of offhand to the farmer, that, hey, wouldn't that be pretty interesting to do that? And the farmer didn't bat an eye. He just said, you don't need to go, you know, to the Himalayas. They have those things out in British Columbia. So the following year, he packs up and moves to British Columbia and starts looking into this. And when he talked to local Native Americans and um, some of the other folks that lived in the area, went to libraries, he told me how he did all this. And he figured out that there really was enough uh, information, you know, solid information to take a serious look at it. So he started really digging in, and uh, he met John Green, and the two of them started uh, really doing this pioneering work. And then... At the same time, they were beginning that things in Bluff Creek, California, were starting up. So, um, you know, they were doing things that no one even thought about doing, even though people like Ivan Sanderson and some others had written books. Um, these guys were the ones who were actually on the ground doing the work. 
that no one else had ever thought of doing. What were their theories? Uh, and we're going to talk about some of the more recent theories that have been circulated as people continue to try to wrestle with the idea mm-hmm. that there's a flesh and blood creature that's 800 pounds, uh, 10 feet tall at times, running around in the North American wilderness that we can't get a good picture of versus, you know, you, uh, alien connection or interdimensional connection or one of these other mm-hmm. ideas. But prior to all that, what did um, what did these early pioneers and researchers believe they were looking for? Well, they thought it was a form of ape, and and they aren't, but long history. So uh, I, I think they felt that they these things had belonged to something else, like um, it became known. There was a guy, a scientist back in the 30s, uh, his name was Von Koningswald, who discovered what was termed dragon teeth in China, and there actually turned out to be a creature called Gigantopithecus. Which, which was a giant ape. And, um, you know, those things got to be, you know, upwards of 12 feet high and, and 1,500 pounds. So something like the Sasquatch that's considerably smaller compared to that is certainly within the realm of, of uh, possibility. So they were thinking once that information became available to them that, that these things were probably that. Um, but uh, I, I don't don't believe there. I don't think they're an ape at all. And we'll get into what you think they are as, as the conversa- conversation continues. But as these pioneers, and prior to your 1972 experience, uh, when it really, this first came to your attention, in between there, there was uh, an event that um, later produced some f- film footage uh, mm-hmm. known as the Patterson-Gimlin film uh, that seemed to have changed everything. I mean, that really brought some attention to this idea. What are your thoughts on the Patterson film? What were uh, Renee's thoughts on the Patterson film? He told me, you know, we, we talked very often because we were pretty good friends and I, we were talking, I don't know, in the late eighties sometime, I remember. And I, I, I asked him that. I said, what, what made you finally be convinced a hundred percent that the film was real? And he looked at me and he says, because I spent 20 years trying to prove it was fake. And he says, I couldn't do it. So, you know, for him, it was 100% legit. I think it's legitimate. It looks very much like what I saw in the flesh. So, and I've actually seen three of these things. I saw another one in 1988, but um, looks very much like what you see in the film. And all the particulars of that situation, there there were some nonsense not long ago where people trying to say that, um, there was a conspiracy and, and a bunch of these things killed there. And it's just, it's just nonsense because um, knowing what that circumstance was back then, there, there weren't very many roads in there. There were loggers living on the road, so they knew exactly who came and who didn't come in that area. Um, before they got the film, there was actually, I'm trying to think, they were there three weeks, so it would have been about a month before that. Um, some loggers found tracks. They found three sets of tracks on the road. Al Hodgson owned the local five and dime in Willow Creek. So pretty much he was kind of the clearinghouse for anybody, you know, having any sort of information about anything coming through town. Mm -hmm. So he found out about it. He called John Green and Green rented a plane. Him and DeHinden and Dog Handler flew down 
it had rained before they got there, so the tracks weren't very good. Uh, Dog wasn't able to do much, so they ended up going back. And Hodgson didn't know how well uh, Green and Roger Patterson knew each other, so he waited uh, until Green left before he called Patterson. He actually talked to Patterson's wife, Patterson and Gimlin, were at Mount St. Helens in the field. So when he got back, um, Al told him that, you know, look, if you want to see tracks, you probably ought to come down here. There's, it was, was a fresh find. So uh, him and Gimlin were out of work or in between job construction workers. So they weren't working at the time. They basically grabbed everything they could um, and run down there. So they stayed three weeks. It was at the end of the time they were there. They were riding up the creek and encountered this creature. So that's kind of the, in a nutshell how that happened. And I asked Renee afterwards, you know, I said, why didn't, because everything kind of stopped after the film was made. And I said, why didn't you guys continue going down? To me, that would have been the really, you know, strike while the iron is hot, right? Get in there while you've got the film. You've got two eyewitnesses. You've got a film and you've got physical evidence on their tracks. So, to me, they should have really exploited that and continued. But uh, he says, well, we thought we had what we needed. Green and Hendon weren't necessarily out to prove the subject was real, the creatures were real. They wanted to get the scientific community involved. You know, they had determined by seeing thousands of tracks and, and all these eyewitness accounts that there was enough for the scientific community to pay attention. That was their goal. And when the film was made, they felt they had achieved that. And it didn't happen. That film has served uh, both as an inspiration for many of uh, those we would consider to be uh, Bigfoot researchers, investigators. I hate using the word Bigfoot hunters because it just is inappropriate in my mind. Um, but it's also been the source of a lot of controversy. You know, some would say, "Oh, you can see a zipper." Some you can say, "Whatever." Um, I don't think you can. I don't think you can tell uh, that there would, if there was a zipper. I don't think you would be able to make it out. And one of the disadvantages of using the film stock that they did is is that it's you know it's a little blurry. It's a little not perfectly clear. It's not like high quality HD digital photography that we're used to today day and they and and sadly people compare it to that but that's not what they had to use in 19 whatever 68 whatever it was um right yeah you know you know good back in 67 the top of the line film at that time was um planet of the apes oh yeah and a lot of people don't understand they see you know when you look at that movie the apes are all wearing clothing right and there's there was a reason they wore clothing it was because the best that Hollywood could do at that time for those sort of suits were these big, heavy uh, fasteners in the back. There was no way that they didn't have any way to hide that. So the actor would enter into the suit from the back. They hook these big fasteners up and then they had to put clothes over them so they could, you know, look more realistic. Uh, so that kind of technology just didn't exist then. So I've, I've interviewed a friend by the name of Bill Munns who, um, used to make suits for Hollywood films. He made made the suit for Swamp Thing and and talked in great detail about that. He did a bunch of work on the film uh, with Mrs. Patterson, did a really great job with it, in fact, explaining all that. And there were some other things, too, like um, Sasquatch dimensions are different than human. In other words, the forearms are longer, um, legs are shorter in comparison with the torso, things like that. 
And one of the things he mentioned that people never noticed, you know, because they weren't suit makers, uh, you can do a lot of things with Hollywood suits. Of course, it's all CGI now, but uh, when they made suits, the joints of the actor always had to match up with the joints on the suit. In other words, elbows, things like that. Right. Uh, so what he said, you know, doing measurements was there was no way that could be a suit. It was, was just impossible, let alone the mode of walking and things like that. So um, it was, you know, in his opinion, too, expert opinion, that's the real article in the film. We're talking tonight with William Jevning. He's not only a Bigfoot researcher, he's also an author, many books to his credit. How many books do you have specifically about this topic, uh, Will? I have, you have a bunch. I have, I have eight so far. Eight about that that specifically address the Bigfoot question. Yes. Well, as you uh, progressed through the years, did you ever get frustrated that you couldn't get that smoking gun evidence that everybody's been asking for? Often, <laughs> <laughs> probably every day, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I I used to document very meticulously my time, and I, I would spend. Uh, you know, of course, working a full-time job and, and family and things like that and still put, you know, 1,500-plus hours a year in the field, um, it does get frustrating sometimes, but I guess I'm just stubborn. Well, I tell you, when you have a curiosity that needs to be uh, satisfied, you're not going to give up until you can prove one way or the other, and you have nobody's gotten there yet, so it's it's a mission still in progress. I do have to ask a question here before I forget, because somebody in our chat room said they just went to your website and there's no contact information. Is there a way for people to reach out to you if they want to maybe share a story or something with you? Yeah, actually, a couple ways. Um, my personal emails are williamjevning at yahoo.com or wjevning at gmail.com. And we also do a weekly podcast called Creek Devil. And if you go to creekdevil.com, we have contact information there. Okay, that's easy enough to remember. Let's... um... Let's talk a little bit more about not necessarily your experiences, but in in those early years when you first started to get your feet wet and really start started your process, which became a long road to get some answers, who were some other people that were having experiences? Are there any stories that really stood out to you as being quite credible and, and maybe even impactful in your effort to get answers? Oh, boy. It's been so many. <laughs> um you know, probably one of the biggest events, and I actually have a book about that. It's a small book, but um, in the town of Yakold, back in 1989, I was, well, before I get to that, I was I walked out uh, one June morning to get to the newspaper when I lived in Vancouver and uh, sat down on the front steps, beautiful morning, I looked at the headline, I flipped the paper over, and here's this article about, a Bigfoot sighting had happened three days before in the town of Yakult, which wasn't far from Vancouver. And I thought, wow, you know, and, and they actually posted the people's address on it. I thought, oh boy, every, every looky looky loo and, and wannabe Bigfoot investigator is going to be out there. But I thought, you know, I'm going to go talk to the family anyway. So I drove out there and, and I asked the people, you know, if anybody had been there and they said, oh yeah, they told me about all these people who said they were, you know, experts and all this stuff. And I said, well, what, what did they ask you? Well, they wanted to see if there were footprints, hair, uh, collected their story, then they left. I said, oh, 
okay, do you mind if I ask you about what happened? No, no, we'll tell you. So they told me, and I've always been interested in behavior of the creatures. So the behavior in this one was particularly interesting because um, Lady of the House was going to go ride her horse. Now, these were new people to the country living. They come from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and uh, had bought 13 acres, so they were had never lived out in the country before. So they had a horse tied up out by this corral, and, and I don't know what they were doing. She was going to go out in a few minutes, but uh, heard a noise, heard the horse making some racket. So she asked her 16-year-old son if he'd go out and check on the horse, make sure the rope wasn't tied up in the hoofs or anything. So he goes out there, and he sees what he thinks is a person walking away from their home, from the corral, down along a tree line away from the home. So he goes racing out there to confront this person. And as he approaches it, he slips on a, on a branch in the ground. He falls down, makes a bunch of noise. Well, this thing hears him, and it turns around. And he said, it kind of reared its head back. Eyes got wide. And it leaned forward like it was trying to get a better look at him. Then it put its arms out at 45-degree angles, palms facing him, and starts walking towards him. So he gets up, and he runs like that. Of course, he's scared to death. Uh, he goes in the house changes into a different pair of boots he said was had better traction and goes back out. Well, by this time, the creature turned around and resumed its course. Uh, when he got close this time, the creature turned around, and this time it came running after him. Didn't try to catch him, but it was like it was chasing him with a little bit more uh, emphasis to get away. So he climbs up on top of the small outbuilding, and it stood there and watched him for a while, like it was making sure he wasn't going to come back. So he said, then it turned around, and it resumed its course again. And I asked him, well, did any of these other people ask to go down where it went to look? He said, no, nobody was interested. I said, can I go look? Sure, we'll take you down. So all of us go down. And we crossed a small stream and went up into another pasture. And there was this big cottonwood tree that had been blown over the previous winter. And at the base of that, there was an intermittent pond that was dried up during this time of year. So I looked under that, and I found two sets of juvenile tracks all over in this dirt. So I said, well, there's the reason it was trying to keep you out of the lower fields. Right. I said, keep your eyes open. There's probably a female in the area, too. So this started a nine-month nine investigation where stuff was happening constantly there. Um, it was It was... I guess akin to what was going on or had gone on in Bluff Creek with this, you know, repeated activity. I, I to this day, I don't know why that group seemed to focus on that particular area, you know, those farms in that particular place. But uh, they did that until uh, it was kind of disrupted. Then they went away and never came back. How do you address people when they, present you with the question that everybody seems to ask. We've been looking for a lot of years and uh, camera technology has gotten so much better and not just better, but more uh, common. Almost everybody has a high quality HD camera on their hip anymore in the form of a cell phone or in their pocket. Um, but yet we still can't get uh, what we would consider to be um convincing or irrefutable photographs of a Bigfoot creature. Still sightings going on, of course, but that photograph just remains so elusive. Why? 
there's a couple of things going on there. Uh, I guess I'm going to try to remember how to address this. <laughs> I do have a, I do have a couple of good pictures. People that seem to get pictures really don't bring them out. It, it, it affects them kind of funny. I have two really good pictures right now. One's of one from Michigan. Uh, it's actually on the cover of my last book that I published. Um, broad daylight, the creature's running away from the person who took the picture, but interesting thing about that is the person who sent it to me isn't the person who took it. Uh, she was a family friend. She says they deny what's in the picture. They want nothing to do with it. They won't talk to anybody. They gave it to her. So whatever happened shocked them enough where they, they just didn't want to deal with it. Another one is a rarity I just got last week because uh, game cameras typically don't work. Uh, because, like most primates, are, they're keenly, keenly aware of what's in their environment. Mm-hmm. But this particular one wasn't in their environment. It was uh, a rancher who had some disturbances on his property, so he put this camera out by this water trough. And very clearly, in broad daylight, this thing, this juvenile, is actually sitting on the edge of the tub with its feet in the water. <laughs> so... <laughs> There are pictures that are very credible, not many, but I think there are more out there, but those people just don't bring them out. Um, I think where I was going. Oh, so the other part of that is these things typically don't want to be around people, uh, and most people looking for them really don't know where these things are and why they're there. So, and that's a, that's a pretty complex picture all by itself, but uh, they're looking in the wrong places. And, and here's another aspect of this, too. Um, when you encounter one of these things, everybody thinks, oh, yeah, I'm going to be able to pull my phone out or camera, and I'm right. going to snap a picture. You know, it's an underwear-changing moment. You're not, <laughs> you know, that camera's the last thing. And I'll give you an example. Uh, a buddy of mine and I were actually in an area adjacent to Bluff Creek about 15 years ago, and we had been talking about this very thing. He, both of us spent a lot of time in the field together, and, and I said, we really have to practice, you know, being prepared, you know, for something that's going to shock us and, and it's going to be fast. We have to be able to, and, and, and I'm in the habit of carrying a camera in my hand all the time. So we both had camcorders in our hands. And this was around 1 o'clock in the morning. We were heading back to our, our camp. And um, so we were prepared. We were talking. And there was a road that came in adjacent to the left of us. And in the in the peripheral light of his headlights, um, I, I saw something running on out of the road, and, and I, I I said, "Hey, look!" And just as I said that, this little year old bear comes zipping out right in front of us, and that little bugger had to be running twenty five miles an hour because he was trying to keep up on him, and we followed this little guy for probably a hundred yards, and he went zipping off into the timber, and we stopped, and I looked at him, I said. Well, fine pair we are. We both got camcorders in our hands. We're out Bigfoot hunting, and neither one of us got a shot of that little bear. <laughs> so, but you can imagine if, if uh, and I, like I said, I've, I've talked to literally thousands of people over the years, and, and with the weekly podcast now, too, uh, witnesses all the time, and it no one. I ask them, you know, do you, do you, did you think about getting a picture? You know, when, when something is in front of you that has that magnitude of impact on your psyche, you know, taking a picture of it's really 
probably the very last thing you're thinking about. And I think that's quite true for uh, anybody who just, you know, would encounter one of these creatures in a ra- randomly in a random situation. And I know that you can yeah. also say, you know, like, uh, think of yourself in a, in a, in a car accident, say somebody kind of, you know, bangs, dings your car and then they drive and they drive off half, you know, more than half the time. Oh, I forgot to take a picture of the license plate. You know, you don't think about anything like that when your, you know, your emotions or your adrenaline is, is running high. However, having said that, Will, there are a lot of people that go out into the woods with cameras specifically looking to get a picture of Bigfoot and they, mm-hmm. they haven't been much more successful uh, does does Sasquatch or Bigfoot? Is it an intelligence thing? Are they just yes. they aware so aware that they know how to avoid this? Oh yeah, um, you're talking about something that's probably a hominid, not an ape, which means it's in the same general. And it's I hate using a term because it's 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 applicable, but it's but then people say, oh, it's human. Well, it's not human. They they knew. You know, anthropologists know that there were at least seven other hominids that lived the same time we did. We're, we think we're the last hominid species that exists, but these guys are another one, and I'm pretty certain of that. Um, all primates are extremely intelligent. Everybody likes to compare dogs and horses and dolphins. With They do have high intelligence, but primates, all primates, there's a gulf of difference between primate species and all of their animals in terms of intelligence. And if these guys are a hominid, then it's even that much more pronounced. So they're going to be keenly watching us because historically there's been a lot of friction between uh, us and these things. I have a lot of Native American friends who told me many times that when their people came, that they chased them out of the hunting areas. There was always friction. Um, You know, it was sort of a live and let live situation but you know they wouldn't come and mess with indians and and they wouldn't go in their areas it was sort of a you know you stay out of my area i'll stay out of yours kind of a thing kind of a mutual respect yeah but there were stories of friction lots of stories of friction um i have friends today that say that you know these things will eat you as 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 opposed to look at you so um with that thinking of in those, those terms, um, you know, they, they don't like human contact. You know, if you do, do see one, there's usually something going on. That's not a chance encounter because they're very aware of where we are. Yeah. Uh, they're more than capable of staying away from us. So when there is a contact like that, there's something else going on, uh, something they want or, or trying to get out of the situation. But, uh, very, I think very few actual chance encounters. You brought up, um, you know, hominid. You brought up kind of a, a bit of a scientific uh, explanation of what type of creature we're talking about here. Do you believe that there are many or several different uh, species of what we consider to be a Bigfoot creature? Well, I was told specifically, and I won't go too much into it, but <laughs> um, this guy worked worked for the government, worked for the military at that time uh, when they were looking into this sort of thing and it would, um, I'll talk about that another time, but, um, what he told me was they knew there were four main categories and, and up to, uh, 22 varieties, which means, you know, you get slight variations depending on geography, you know, you get a breeding pool, 
that's kind of stays local um, will develop things that won't develop in other areas. You know what I mean? Um, our own ethnic differences, you know, or classification of that. But um, so it's you get all those varieties, but they remain. And even the early people like John Napier and some of those felt there were two main types based on their footprints. And when you look at some of the footprints, there are some clear differences between the two types that they called. Um, so my contact told me that there were four and maybe a fifth variety, uh, not necessarily species, but enough of a difference where, you know, physio- physiological and, and those kinds of characteristics to make the separations. Earlier, I mentioned a couple of ideas that seem to be gaining a little bit more traction as the conversation of explaining Bigfoot continues. One is this idea there might be an alien connection. Another uh, idea is that there may be an interdimensional component to all of this. What are your thoughts on those two ideas? Well, an inter- and I, I get people say, well, what about mind speak? And, almost, and my answer is, name one other species on the planet that has that. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're they're a natural part. They've been around for probably predate our species, um, because you know, of native folks have said they were here before they came. So they're probably an older species than us. Um, you know, one time the planet had there was an article I can't remember who wrote it, but they it was called Planet of the Apes, and, and they talk about uh, how there were so many species of primates at one time that literally proliferated around the world. So um, many of them are gone now, and these things can simply be a leftover. But um, I I don't think there's any alien connection or interdimensional. There's nothing. I think those are just ways of, for people, because they can't explain this, you know, it's easier to jump to things like that and fill gaps rather than do the hard work to, you know, fill in those gaps. Is there anybody, in addition to yourself, obviously, but anybody who's doing work right now that you think is really uh, probably uh, on track to to get some answers for us? I'll be honest. I, I don't know of any. Yeah. It's tough. The field is a little strange, and I think the TV heard it a little bit, too. I don't know what your thoughts are. strange. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what your thoughts on the reality television stuff, but I think they yeah, was... you know, some of the stuff, and, and I'll, things like... And I won't name the show, but um, going out and banging on trees and making a bunch of noise and light, you know, anybody who hunts knows that's the very (laughs) last thing you want to do if you want to find any kind of wildlife. Right. Um, That's that's going to, and these guys are pretty touchy when it comes to, you know, doing stuff in their environment. Uh, You know, my anthropology training, they said if you want to observe, uh, a species, you, you need to be quiet, you need to just observe them, you don't interact with them. Uh, that changes conditions and, and results, so, um, you know, going out and making a bunch of noise is absolutely the wrong approach. If you want to see something, you need to be quiet and observe. Tell me about um, how the Forest Service interfered with your efforts. The Forest Service really has never bothered me. I, um, the only actual, actual interaction I've had with officials was uh, the game wardens in southern Washington's Canadian and Clark counties, where we were up um, when I first started working that area. 
Renee DeHindemith as well. Nobody's worked that area since Roger Patterson. You know, I'm glad you're there. So we, we started working in, and I started, we started finding tracks up near the snow line uh, above the Washougal River. So we were out there looking one spring, you know, towards the, uh, the end of the snow, and I heard a noise where my car was parked. So I me and a few guys were up there, and we went running down, and here are these two guys, and, and one guy was just in regular clothes standing next to my car, and I thought, well, there's somebody trying to break in the car. <laughs> and I was freshly out of the Army, and I was a sergeant, and I come, come down there and started chewing this guy up one side and down the other, and I happened to glance over at the pickup and at the other guy. He's wearing a uniform, and I thought, you know, I'm already into it. I look like an idiot. I'm just going to keep going. So I chewed him out, and then I went and chewed the guy in uniform out. And and we got talking afterwards, and I said, you know, I didn't I didn't mean to come off you guys like that, but I thought you were breaking into my car, so I was just wasn't going to let that happen. And he says, no, no, he says it, it was our fault. We should have, you know, announced ourselves. And we got talking, and uh, and they were actually very friendly, very interested, and uh, would watch my vehicles for me when we were up there, and had a, actually a pretty good relationship. But um, never had the Forest Service interfere. I did hear things about people who might have been fake for a service. Oh, mm-hmm. I don't know what that was about, but uh, there were there were footprints found by credible people, and before I was able to get to them, um, they were destroyed in both cases by somebody wearing Forest Service uniforms. One person even gave uh, these two older gentlemen who took me to their track find uh, this business card. He had taken pictures, he said, told him he could have pictures. Uh, when they went to contact him, no such person existed. So I don't know what was going on there, but it was a very strange situation. Both of them very similar kind of situations. I have a, a question from our chat room. Um, it says, um, can Bigfoot cause you to have a sense of foreboding? And the listener is asking because uh, she went on a camping trip with her husband, and her husband got up because he thought he heard raccoons or raccoons getting into the cooler. He sent something in the woods and immediately got back into the tent. He said he got goosebumps and that fight or flight feeling uh, was was uh, generated. And since he didn't know what it was, he decided to, to flee, basically get back in the tent. Um, so a sense of foreboding. Does, does an encounter with Bigfoot, even if you don't see it, give you a sense of foreboding? You know, I think it's possible. A friend and I talked years ago about um, that very topic, and and he brought up the possibility that maybe it was uh, pheromones, you know, triggering some kind of genetic memory, right. possibly. Right. Um, I, I think that's possible, sure. I mean, you know, in other situations, we seem to have that sixth sense sometimes when there's danger nearby. So there's something triggering that. Another question from our chat room is, has anybody ever used thermal cameras or some type of drone aerial uh, photography or technology in this search, and what were the results? There have been. I knew a couple um, up in the the Puget Sound area of Washington that actually were given a thermal. Um, They weren't shown how to use it, but they figured it out and got a pretty good picture of uh, the upper body of one of these things. But uh, beyond that, I'm not too uh, aware of how, you know, anybody getting great pictures. I, I do know a guy in the South who uh, retired Army 
friend of mine who took a thermal out and uh, he didn't get he didn't get pictures but he did they were able to see a number of these creatures um, in northern Alabama I believe it was it seems like the best use of a thermal would be I mean I've heard a lot of stories of people who were either intentionally looking or uh, just happen to be in a campsite at night and they hear the knocking or they hear the vocalizations and they mm-hmm. can even hear uh, or smell, you know, because sometimes there's an odor, uh, I'm told. Uh, it seems like at that point is when you'd want to point the thermal uh, camera at that area and see if you see a heat signature. Right. If it's open, I mean, you know, of course, um, depending on how much you're willing to spend on the thermal, they can get pretty yeah, spendy. No, they are. They're, they're expensive pieces of equipment. Yeah. We don't have That's a whole... People. We don't have a whole okay. lot of t- yeah. We don't have a whole lot of time with you uh, left, Will. I, but uh, one of the other questions floating in the chat room was with with eight books that you've written about this topic. Do you recommend one that uh, people who are new to your work start with? I would recommend my first book. That's it's called Notes from the Field. That's that's a pretty good foundational book. Notes. That's notes from the field. So, um, and then. Um, oh. A lot of your work is uh, takes a bit of a, a pragmatic approach to the effort to, uh, to to get the answers, right? I mean, you don't just tell stories. You actually talk about the search. Right. Uh, two of the books are called Witness of the Unknown, Volume 1 and 2. Those are accounts that people have sent me that I, I thought would be interesting for, you know, people want to read uh, people's encounters. Mm-hmm. One of them is called, one of the books is uh, Bigfoot Fieldwork 101. You know, if people want to get started doing this, that's a that's a good foundational piece for getting started. Um, in search of the unknown, that's my own uh, first eight years involvement in this. I did one the Minnesota Iceman, Haunted Valley, and Bigfoot Evidence. Bigfoot Evidence is my last one. That has we we were talking. Me and a friend were talking about um, putting you know how. You would present this if it were in a court. He's a judge, so mm-hmm. uh, he, that's where the idea came from. He says, you know, because everybody says, well, there's no evidence. Well, all the stuff that's in the book by federal rules of evidence is evidence. It's what it's allowable in a court of law. So uh, I sort of put it in a book form as being introduced as evidence into a, a fictional court setting, so with a lot of photographs of things, so... That's kind of an interesting piece also. Have sightings increased, decreased, remained about the same, say, in the past 20 years? You know, I think there are just more people willing to talk. Mm-hmm. I think the sightings have always been taking place. It's just more more acceptance in, in terms of coming forward and talking about it. What can people do if they have a story that they want to share, specifically with you? And I know you gave your email address, so give that again. Um, but is there a place they can go, like a central collection point of, of stories that uh, they could submit? Um, they could do it at our site, Creek Devil. We're actually putting together a database that people can go in there and look at that information and a map also. Um, my information is williamjevning at yahoo.com or wjevning at gmail.com, but also, um, and of course my website, williamjevning.com, but you can also contact us at creekdevil.com and uh, submit, or if you have a question, you know, we address all people's questions on the show. 
Well, this has been a great discussion. I love uh, getting the updates. Do you think, in your personal opinion, what's more exciting to you about this? And maybe you can speak for the industry, all the people that do this. What's more exciting, the chase or the answers? I mean, when you finally get answers, are you going to be disappointed that the chase is over? No, I think I'll be ready to retire. (laughs) I've done this for 47 years, so... (laughs) <laughs> when, when I'm finished, I'll be finished, I think. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, thanks for coming back on the show. I know we had a little confusion about start time, but it all worked out really well. It was a great discussion, and I appreciate your time tonight, Will. I appreciate you having me on. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.